comes from the section in 2 Timothy that is probably one of the last things that Paul wrote to Timothy before his execution. Where Paul is exhorting Timothy, encouraging Timothy, but also warning Timothy. And Paul's reflecting back on his life as his life and time on earth is coming to a close. It's telling that these are the last things that we have from Paul. The passage today that I'll be preaching from is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This section in 2 Timothy is Paul's closing charge to Timothy. But what's the context of the greater letter? The whole, the whole epistle of 2 Timothy is written very urgently. It's a relatively short epistle by Pauline standards. It's four chapters. But there's a lot crammed into those four chapters. We know the authorship is Paul. It starts off at the beginning, Paul, an apostle of Christ. We know it was written probably sometime shortly after the burning of Rome, during the, per, during the first persecution under Nero. Nero took over in the mid-50s, but slowly, rather rapidly, began a descent into insanity, which culminated with the burning of Rome and the persecution of Christians. We know that Paul wrote this letter from prison, and while certainly this isn't the first time that Paul was in prison, it would definitely be his last. From the tone of the letter, where we read where Paul's talking, I have, I'm already being poured out. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul did not expect that he would be released. Contrasts this to other places in Paul's writings. In Philippians 1, where he's also in prison, and he's talking about whether in life or death, he counts it as gain. But he's expecting to be released, and he says as much. 
He talks about his time here is very little, but he expects that he will return to them shortly. We know that the recipient is Timothy. There's a lot said about, Tim- about Timothy throughout the, Paul's writings. There's a number of passages that suggest that Timothy was a rather reserved and timid man. At the beginning of 2 Timothy, Paul exhorts Timothy, I remind you to fan the flame into the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul also writes, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease, for he is doing the work of the Lord. We're told that Timothy is Timothy is portrayed as somewhat timid. We also know that he was young. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul writes, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We also know that Timothy is a loyal friend. And Paul says more about that aspect of Timothy than any other. Paul, or Timothy is listed as a companion and co-author of Paul for 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He's also listed as a frequent companion on his various missionary journeys. In Philippians, Paul, ta- Paul says of Timothy, I have no one like him. He calls Timothy his beloved child. And it's also telling that at the close of this epistle to Timothy, that of any... And early church, Timothy, or early church tradition holds that Timothy did in fact meet his death, trying to stop a procession to honor one of the Greek goddesses was characterized by violence, murders, and orgies, and he opposed this by standing in the way of the procession, preaching the gospel. And the crowd being so incensed at his preaching of the gospel, they beat him, dragged him through the streets, and ultimately stoned him to death. So it certainly seems that Paul's charge to Timothy was well heeded. Paul is exhorting Timothy to remember the work that he has before him. In chapter 2, he writes to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the work of truth. Timothy can have great confidence that in handling the work of truth, he is doing the work of the Lord. He need not be ashamed. He need not be feared, fearful. He also reminds Timothy to be mindful of irreverent speech and idleness that can lead others away. If he's doing the work of the Lord, then every word that exits his mouth has great importance. To be mindful of the words that he speaks. He also exhorts Timothy to be gentle and long-suffering rather than angry and hostile, rather patient and gentle with those who would persecute him. 
Then Paul, begin, Paul also warns Timothy about false teachers. This part of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is very, echoes very similarly to similar sections in 2 Peter and the book of Jude. Paul warns Timothy that false teachers have snuck in. There will be difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Christ in the gospel calls these whitewashed tombs. They'll look good on the outside, but the power of the gospel is not with them. Paul again exhorts Timothy to remain firm in Scripture. At the closing of that section, Paul says, to remember, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may, com- may be complete, equipped for every good work. The man of God cannot be properly equipped for battle against false teaching without being properly equipped. And make no mistake, Paul portrays this as battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, though. It's against powers and principalities and darkness of this present age. But make no mistake, it is battle. How do we do battle? Paul starts right out at the beginning of chapter 4. Preach the gospel. The gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That Paul spoke of to Timothy in his previous letter. Of such importance is Paul's exhortation to Timothy to preach the gospel that there are no fewer than 36 references to true gospel in in the four chapters of 2 Timothy. 36 references. But there are also 17 references to false gospel. Paul placed premium importance on preach the true gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To induce this faithfulness to his command to preach the gospel, Timothy give, or Paul gives Timothy a charge. He charges him in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. This was no mere charge. This was a charge in the presence of the creator of heaven and earth. Paul reminds Timothy that the watchful eye of the father and the son are on him. that the work that Timothy is charged with is of such importance that it warrants the watchful eye of the Father. And because we are under the watchful eye of the Father, 
so too must we be watchful. The author of Luke, in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35, and I won't read the whole section, but he start, the author of Luke starts with the words of Christ, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. We must be watchful, for we are being watched. Preaching the word is no indifferent matter. We're preaching the only thing that can save. We're preaching the only thing that can heal a broken world. The only thing that has a chance. We're preaching the gospel. This is no indifferent matter. We are not charged with preaching our own words and fanciful notions that will tickle the ears of the listener. Rather, we are charged to preach the gospel of God. That is, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And this will cause division. This will not unite. Christ is very clear about that later on in Luke chapter 12, where he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This gospel will cause division because it will convict. It will convict of evil and wrongdoing and the need for repentance. This gospel does not unite but it divides. Which is why Paul exhorts Timothy to be long-suffering, because the gospel that he's preaching will divide those who hear. There will be those, when Timothy rises up to go, there will be those who rise up to oppose. It will cause division. Paul also reminds Timothy in the presence of God and Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Timothy is warned that he will answer for his ministry on the great day of Christ's appearing. We will answer we will answer to the Son, for the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, who will come to judge both the living and the dead. The Son will come a second time, and when he comes a second time, he will come in his glory. He will not come as Savior. 
he will come enthroned in glory in his kingdom as the righteous judge. We will give an account. As a good soldier of Christ, we will give a report. Because of the importance of this charge, you can hear the urgency in Paul's writing to Timothy. He's charging him in the presence of God. And we have to be prepared at all times. As Paul says, both in season and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient, when people are ready to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. Preach the gospel. We have no greater charge. We must be prepared to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reproving means to expose, to convict with an eye to restoring to sound doctrine and godly behavior, to convince. Reproving is done with the, with the hope of bringing that person, bringing, the, bringing one who is strayed off into false teaching or myths, to bring that person back into sound doctrine. But reproval isn't always what's needed. Sometimes we need to rebuke. That is, to censure severely and absolutely. The word, the word that's translated from the Greek there is rebuke has the sense of restraining, to actively oppose and restrain false teaching, to stand in the way, and to exhort to offer comfort to the suffering, to encourage the scared, to console the sad. Because we're preaching the gospel, the only thing that can bring us hope. And we're to do so with patience and teaching, not with, not with emotion, not, with, not to make people feel good, but to bring people back into sound doctrine and sound understanding of the gospel so that they too can go forth and preach the gospel. But why must we do battle? Because Paul then says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll have itching ears to seek out teachers who will suit their own passions and lusts. Paul, talks, Paul describes that false teacher at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And he gives a more thorough account in Romans chapter 1 at the end. People, can be, people will be drawn in by all manner of falsehoods and myths. Things that sound good but have no power. That God wants you to be happy. God will give you wealth. God's promising you all sorts of material gain that have no basis in Scripture. Paul warns against these myths many times in the, in the pastoral letters. 
He talks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, or chapter 1, verse 4. He also talks about it in the book of Titus. He doesn't give specifics as to what the nature of these myths and false teachings are. Simply that they will be present. So we have to keep watch. We have to be ready to confront with the gospel. Paul also paints a picture that opposition will come not just from outside the church, but from within. Because if the gospel, if Christ came not not to unite, but came to divide, if he did not come to bring peace, but to divide, then it stands to reason that some of that division will be among people within the church. Among those who claim to be saved. How do we measure our success in this battle? There is a tendency among the church today to measure success in in terms of how the world measures success by the number of baptisms performed, by the number of church members, the number of conversions, the size of tithes and offerings, the weekly attendance or crowd size, and the energy of a room. These are measures of success as the world measures success. But we are called to be set apart, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed, to set our eyes on things above. If we're called to be set apart from this world, it stands to reason that our metric for success is different. And Paul gives us that metric for success. Preach the word. If I have preached the word, then I have been successful. But not only is our metric for success different, the prize for success is different as well. We measure our success by our obedience. In John chapter 14, Christ says to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. What are these commands? In some of his last words on earth, Christ tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He says here in 2 Timothy 4, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Mark chapter 16, he talks, he says, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And in his last recorded words on earth at the beginning of the book of Acts, he commanded his disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It is the most frequent command that we are given in the New Testament. Preach the word. If I have preached the gospel, if I have preached the word, I have been successful. Because our job is not to convict. 
That's the job of the Holy Spirit. As Christ says in John 16, when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Our job is not to convict. Our job is to preach the word. Sometimes we will see absolutely zero fruit of our ministry. The Bible is full of examples. In Isaiah's commission from the Lord, the Lord, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. The Lord is telling Isaiah, You will go for me. They will not listen. You will have no fruit from your ministry. But my command is the same. Go forth and preach my word. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, the author of both Jeremiah and Lamentations, for his entire ministry, there is no documented fruit of his ministry in the Bible. We know of no success that Jeremiah had. For his entire ministry, there was no great repentance in Israel. His ministry ended with the fall of, of, of Jerusalem. The people did not listen. And yet, he was commanded to go anyway. And yet, for as unsuccessful as their ministries were by any metric of the world, they were successful because they preached the word that they were given by God. The Holy Spirit convicts. Our job is to preach the word. If I have preached the word, then I have been successful. But what is our conduct in battle? How do I preach the word? In verse 5, Paul commands Timothy to always be sober-minded, that is, exercising clear judgment, be self-controlled and disciplined. Throughout Paul's letters, he consistently gives athletic metaphors. The discipline of the body, exercising self-control, denying the flesh, training continuously. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Peter writes, Therefore, be prepare, therefore preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, 
set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, remember what we're preaching. Stay focused. Be sober-minded, not giving in to whims of the flesh. Paul writes in Corinthians, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Keep your eye on the prize. We're also called to endure suffering. The word here that's translated as endure suffering or endure hardship is not simply unfortunate things that happen to us through no fault of one's own. The sense of the word here is malicious hardship inflicted by others. Paul's warning Timothy, others will seek out to oppose us and to destroy us. We're to endure it. We're to endure it for the sake of the cross. Earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We endure the sufferings inflicted upon us by others because the gospel is not bound by our suffering. The gospel is not bound by the chains put on us by others. We preach the gospel, keeping our eye on the prize. And the gospel that we preach, as the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. Paul speaks after this after we're to preach the gospel with both long-suffering and with a sober mind. Paul reflects back on his life. He speaks of already being poured out as a drink offering. But note, Paul is not pouring himself out as a drink offering. He's being poured out as a drink offering to God. There is reference here back to the Old Testament sacrificial system of the drink offering. Drink offerings were often viewed as a libation and a symbol of joy and rejoicing and fellowship. Drink offerings were not offered as atonement for sin. They were offered in celebration. The drink offering ultimately had its perfection in Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood on the cross. 
Paul speaks in Ephesians that he considered it pure joy to emulate Christ's sacrifice. That his life is, an, is a sacrifice, is an acknowledgement to the honor and grace of God and his truth. It's curious that we should look that Paul speaks of his impending death with great joy. He speaks of it as a drink offering, his life being poured out as a celebration to God. He's not scared of death because he knows that as a child of God, death ultimately has no power. He has been freed. He speaks that the time of my departure has come. The word that's translated as departure more properly is translated as a releasing or an unyoking, not simply leaving a place. Paul understands his death to be a release from, the, from his imprisonment in this sinful world and to be in the presence of God, and this gives him much hope. He looks forward to his departure with great anticipation. He looks back on his life with great pleasure. He says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He did not fear death because he had the testimony of his conscience that by the grace of God, he had in some measure answered the ends of living. He fought the good fight. The lesson for us is that the life of Christian is both warfare and a race. It is both a fight and a race with an ends. But it is not just any fight or any race. It is a good fight. And it is a good race because the victory is assured. Our victory was already won on the cross. Our victory is assured. And so we can go forth boldly and preach the gospel because we know what the ends of our ministry is. But we must fight it out. We must finish the course laid before us that we may, as Paul writes in Romans 8, be more than conquerors through him who loved us. But Paul looks back on his life as a great comfort because it is a great comfort to the dying saint to look back on the sum of one's life and be able to say, I have fought the good fight. He looks forward to the life waiting for him hereafter. He had lost all things through Christ, but he had gained everything by Christ. And he is looking forward to the crown, the crown that is righteousness, that has been laid up to him since that day on the road to Damascus and from the beginning of the world. We are called to do the work of an evangelist, to preach the gospel, 
because we know the ends of our race. We are called to fulfill our ministry. Each one of us has been given a role in ministry based on the gifts that the Lord has bestowed on us. And we are commanded to fulfill the ministry to which we've been given. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Writing to the Ephesians, or speaking to the Ephesians at the end of Acts, he says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He stayed true to the ministry that he had been given to preach the gospel of God. That quite truthfully, each one of us has been given. What is the ends of our battle? the crown that is righteousness. This is not a crown that is given to those who are righteous. It is a crown that is righteousness. This crown was purchased by the righteousness of Christ and bestowed on his saints. The other, thing, the other thing of significance to note of this crown, the crown has been laid up already. We do not have it at present, but we will, for we are heirs with Christ. We do not have it yet. Yet, it has been assured, and it is already laid up and waiting. We have not earned it through any works that we are doing. It is the reward for faith that we have been given, as Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It is there and we will receive it. Paul speaks of receiving that crown that is righteousness. that God, the righteous judge, will give on that day. But not just to Paul, but on that day to all who have loved his appearing. So we come to the end of it. At the end of the battle, that we as soldiers may fight the battle that is laid before us well. As Paul exhorts Timothy in chapter 2, to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. And on that day, we give the report that I have fought the good fight, that I have won, or that I have finished the race, and that I have kept the faith. So that on that day, we may hear from Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master.